So 1 Peter chapter 1, and I was just really convicted this past week after we got home, and I wasn't jet lagged. Um, I just really couldn't get past verse 23, and you'll know why. There's, there's some phrases in there that I feel need to be greatly clarified, that need to be clarified not only here, but need to be clarified by the evangelical church today. Or we could just say Christ church, Christ body in our world today. And so we're going to look at verse 23, and for context, I'll read verse 22 as well. So if you have it in front of you, please stand while we read the word of God together. This, again, is 1 Peter chapter 1 beginning at verse 22, and we'll just read through 23. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love or unhypocritical love of the brethren, fervently love, agape, one another from the heart. Then verse 23. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we ask now as we dig back into your word, as we consider what your word has for us today, we ask that you would speak to our hearts, that you would take your word, which is described right here as living, and you would make it alive in us, that you would teach us, encourage us, clarify things with us, that we would cling to your word today. Teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was a recent Associated Press story that began with these, this sentence. Today we live in a culture of lying. And then went on to lament how frequently and how casually so many people today misrepresent the facts. After a while, in fact, another article explained, the untruths are recycled so many times that they simply just become believable after a while. You've probably heard some form of that expressed at some point. What it comes down to then today so popularly so widespread is that mere opinion, and I say mere opinion, based on no more than this is the way that I see it, then can take on a deceptive and dangerous position of, of self as the ultimate authority, as self as the determiner of truth, as self as the determiner of what is true and what is false. Now, obviously, as you think about that, as you consider that, this is, a, this is a huge problem. But I want to suggest this morning, really no more so than in the realm of Christianity, in the realm of the church today. Why is that? Because nothing is more critical Nothing is more important than the truth. And the fact that there is only one truth means we have to get this right. It's a matter, really, of, of life and death. A week ago this past Friday, 
George Barna, I don't know if you're familiar with his name at all, he's kind of the George Gallup of research, but within the Christian realm. He was speaking at, in Washington, D.C. at an event, in fact, the same event that Donald Trump spoke at, the same event that Ron DeSantis spoke at, and he cited his most recent stats. So this was just a little over a week ago on what he called self-identifying Christians. Now, according to his analysis, he came up with these figures, and I want you to keep these in your mind, okay? I'm going to throw a lot of numbers out, but follow along with me. He said that 174 million people are self-identifying Christians. That would comprise, right now, as of today, roughly 68% of the U.S. population. You got that number? Okay, but then he went on to clarify that number a little more. So hold with me here. Only 90 million self-identified as, I quote, born again. Born again Christians. Now that would translate roughly to about 35% of the population. Okay, did you get those two numbers? We started at 174 million, right? Now we're down to 90 million. Okay, but he went further adding that only 46 million now self-identify as, and I quote, deeply committed to their faith. That would comprise then roughly a percentage number of about 18, 18%. And he further estimated that less than 10%, according to various surveys and research and polling of Christians or people that identified as Christians, had a true biblical worldview. Okay, what does that mean? We could define a biblical worldview in the most simplest form as getting our outlook on daily life, on practical living, solely from the scriptures. Now, with all those numbers in mind, do you remember how the breakdown went along? I went through it slowly. Do you sense something a little wrong here? I would suggest, first of all, as we think about those numbers, the thing that, that really stood out to me was that self-identifying is obviously not the determiner of saving faith. And I want you to look back at the Gospel of John in the second chapter. There's a few verses here at the at the end of chapter 2 that have always intrigued me. From I remember reading it the very first time, and it's never failed to intrigue me after reading it again. It's just a short little section at the end of chapter 2. So are you there? The Gospel of John, chapter 2, this is how he closes out the chapter, beginning of verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, so we're talking about Jesus here. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. Okay, are you getting all this? Many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. There's a but here, though, in the next verse. So not end of story. Not tabulating figures yet. We're not saying successful crusade. Here's the numbers. Verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, 
And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in a man. Isn't that interesting? You have one report where we would go, wow, all these believers. And then you have, wait a minute, let's clarify something here. Maybe what we're seeing on the surface, the self-identification, yeah, I believe, wasn't real. Because Jesus wasn't entrusting himself to them. What does this tell us then about self-determining? self-professing, that Jesus alone is the determiner. Jesus alone is the true evaluator. And in the next chapter in John, so if you've still got your Bible open there, he tells us exactly what this is based on. So Jesus is the determiner. He tells us what this is based on. So go back to John chapter 2 at the end, the section that we just read about. And he tells us what this is based on in John chapter 3, which should be somewhat of a familiar passage to you. He says at the beginning of the chapter, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, I truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said... You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. And as we drop down a little bit further, we run into a verse that just about everybody in the United States, if not the world that speaks English, knows well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should, no, should not perish, but have everlasting life. So let me ask you this question in light of what we just read together. Hi. In light of what we just read together in John chapter 3. Is it possible to be a Christian without being born again? Is it possible to be a Christian without being born again? Now, if you remember, we just looked at those first 12 verses or so in John chapter 3. and verse 7, again, Jesus reiterated to Nicodemus by saying, you must be born again. 
Do you remember hearing that language? You must be born again. Now, in the original Greek language, that little word must is very powerful. It's a very strong word. It's a very black and white, very direct word. And it means literally there are no exceptions. There are no loopholes, no exceptions. You must be born again. You also is very important to understand. In the original Greek language, it's in the plural form. So Jesus isn't just saying, Nicodemus, you alone must be born again. This is just a message for you. I have a different message for everybody else. Being in the plural form, Jesus is speaking truth that applies to all of us. Meaning, everyone, anyone, without exception, you and I here in this room, so what are we coming to terms here with in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, and John chapter 2 at the very end, and then John chapter 3? There are not levels of Christianity that are determined and defined by us to the degree of, of commitment that any one of us individually might be comfortable with. Peter uses this same phrase back in 1 Peter in chapter 1 at the very beginning of his letter. We looked at it together many, many months ago in verse 3 where he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And here in verse 23, for you have been born again. Here again, the pronoun you is in the plural form. This is it. This alone is the real thing. It doesn't matter what you profess. It matters what you possess. Isn't this what John chapter 3 so clearly told us? That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit, capital S, is spirit. This is a, a supernatural rebirth that, that is initiated and orchestrated by God himself. He has caused us to be born again. God starts it. God carries it out. He completes it all on his terms alone. What does that mean? There is no kind of Christianity. There is no religious person Christianity. There is no halfway brand of Christianity. There is no I believe in God but don't go overboard brand of Christianity. There is no I believe in Jesus but not the Bible Christianity. There is no unborn again Christianity. And you may think, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. But how do I get all this straight in my head? What about all those people that, that actually believe? What about all those people that I've encountered over the years and I encounter them all the time and I've encountered and spoken and argued with and reasoned with and conversed with hundreds of them over the years? Let's say, I believe. Oh, absolutely. I believe in God. 
absolutely, I have a strong faith. I'm a person of faith. I'm a God believer. What about all of that? It's sobering when we read in the book of James in the New Testament in James chapter 219, where he says very clearly, the demons also believe and shudder. I can tell you that I believed in God for over 15 years. I believed in God. If somebody asked me, do you believe in God? Yes. Absolutely, emphatically. I went to church two to three times a week. I did a ton of religious stuff. I mean, a ton of it. Way too much religious stuff. Rituals and routines and programs. Some of it was required. Some of it I did because it was compulsory. It was like, I have to do this. I, if I don't do this, I won't feel as spiritual. All that said, I was not born again. I believed in God. I believed in religion. I believed in the spiritual life. I believed in religious rituals, but I was not born again. Now, let me ask you this. Let's ask a Bible study question on John chapter 3, okay? Did Nicodemus believe in God? Did he? What do you think? Was he a believer in God? Would he have acknowledged the God of the Old Testament if somebody said, hey, Nicodemus, are you a believer? Absolutely, Nicodemus, that was his job. Nicodemus was a professional God believer. Then why didn't Jesus just have a completely different encounter with him in John chapter 3? Why didn't Jesus just walk up to him and say, well, okay then, Nick. You know, that counts for something. All that work you've done as a Pharisee. Everybody knows you believe in God. That's got to count for something. We'll make an exception here. Why didn't Jesus have that kind of conversation with Nicodemus? Well, Nicodemus was a real spiritual guy. I mean, that's got to mean something. But Jesus cut him short, didn't he? Jesus said to Nicodemus, you remember, you must be born again. In fact, he told him he couldn't inhabit the kingdom of God unless he was. So he wasn't. And he didn't. Why? Why did Jesus have that kind of conversation with him? Because Nicodemus had approached God on his own terms. Nicodemus had worked out a system and was part of a system and part of a belief system of coming to God on man's terms. In fact, if we go back, Jesus talked about this back in Mark chapter 7. He, he writes these words, beginning in verse 6. And he said to them, he's talking to the religious leaders, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it has been written in Isaiah 29, 13, 
This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me. Why? Teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God you hold to the traditions of men. He was also saying to them, you nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your traditions. Where is the focus here in what Jesus is saying to these religious leaders? The traditions of men. Did you catch that? My way of believing in God. My way of defining faith. Something that I like, that I can measure, that I am comfortable with. That says I am better off than a non-religious person, but maybe doesn't ask for my entire life. But Jesus says in the context, so to speak, of John chapter 3, no to all of that. You must be born again. Well, why? Well, back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. He tells us. He says, because you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. There is a huge dramatic contrast here that Peter is presenting between two completely different things. He describes them as perishable. He said, you're not redeemed by perishable things, but by imperishable. Perishable and imperishable. They're completely different. One can only be produced by the living and abiding word of God, which he talks about. In that verse, and we'll talk about in the next couple of verses before the first chapter is out. And one is produced by, here we go, back to man. One is temporal, the one produced by man. And one is eternal, the one that can only be produced by God. In fact, if you go back to John chapter 1. Jesus makes this interesting statement, or John as he's writing here, but as many received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Listen to verse 13. This is John chapter 1. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Who were born not of, and he lists three different things. He wants us to understand this. He covers all the bases. He says, not by blood. Well, what does that mean? That means your physical birth. That means your, your background, your, your family line, your coat of arms, your family, your parents, your, your spiritual traditions, all of those things that you were raised with. You cannot be born again through those things. You can't, there is no spiritual osmosis that said, I've always been a Christian, I was raised in a Christian home, I've been around Christian things, I've always gone to church, I've always gone to Bible studies, therefore I'm a Christian. He says, no. Number one. Number two, what does he say? Not by will, the will of man. You cannot generate spiritual life on your own. This is what we've been talking about. There is no faith my way or believing in God my way or church only my way or the Bible only my way. I believe in God, but it's not like you believe in God. I have faith, but maybe it's not like you guys have faith. Not by the will of man. It's not up to you. 
See, really, this is an authority issue he's talking about in the, in the second expression. He's saying there is this, this cataclysmic major separation between this authority of man that so much wants to, wants to, wants to define what religion is versus the absolute authority of God as expressed in his living word. He said, you can't do it. And then number three, what does he talk about? What's in number three? By the will of man, meaning someone else. So he's, he's hinting at the fact here that no, another person can't usher you into the kingdom of God. You can't force somebody into the kingdom of God. A person's response to being born again is not based on salesmanship. It's not based on a great marketing program. It's not based on putting all the facts out there and I've done such a good job. You are obligated to become a Christian. We know from experience that's not true. You can present everything that you think is perfect. You can have evidence. You can tell them how Jesus has changed your life in dramatic ways. And they can just look at you and say, good for you. I've had it happen many, many times. That's great for you. I'm glad that works for you. Right? What is that? Because it won't happen that way. You cannot drag somebody into the kingdom of God. What is he telling us then? Well, he says in chapter 1 and verse 13 at the end, there's a simple little phrase there that closes it out. It's the same way that Peter is expressing it in chapter 1, verse 3 and verse 23. It says, but of God. But of God. It's God's doing. Only God himself can cause regeneration, spiritual life. Only God can cause one to be born again through his word. This has got to be on his terms. This word is the final authority. Do we get this? Do we really get this? It's on God's terms. It's only one way. It's not, I believe, I have faith. Yeah, I'm kind of there. It's okay. I, yeah, it's one way. On his terms. I just read a book recently. It just came out a few months ago called The Wager. You may have seen it. Phenomenal book about a ship and a shipwreck. And I mean, it's just got all the elements there. It's a great story. I won't give it away. But it's interesting because one of the chapters is called, you come to it, it's called The Storm Within the Storm, chapter 5. So they're in the midst of a totally descriptive, going around the, the horn of, of South America, and they've entered into those waters, if you've read anything about that, and they're battling all the elements, everything's falling apart, the ship's leaking, all kinds of crazy things are going on. Then there's the storm within the storm. What is that? The storm within the storm is suddenly all of the sailors all of the officers start getting very sick. Their teeth begin to fall out. Their hair begins to fall out. They have scabs and sores all over their body. They can't do anything. They're laying around. Their skin is getting white. And suddenly, they're starting to die off one by one. The storm within the storm. Anybody have a guess what they had? 
They didn't know anything about it back then. Scurvy. Scurvy. Does anybody know what scurvy is? It's a lack of what? Vitamin C. It's a simply a lack of vitamin C. Now, we can't understand that. We can run down any store in Oregon City and pick up bottles and bottles of vitamin C. We can, we can get all kinds of produce. We can find vitamin C everywhere. But when you're on a ship and you have no understanding of these diseases at that time, this was in the 1700s, they had no clue. So one of the popular methods of that time was they thought, well, this has something to do with the earth. They need to get nutrients from the earth. And so they would take people inflicted with scurvy. If they ever got to land, they would bury them up to their heads in dirt and leave them there. What do you think they found out? That work out very good? Uh, they had a bunch of dead people already most of the way in the ground, I think. They had all kinds of other little weird remedies, you know, eye of newt and all these weird things that people would bottle together. They'd make these elixirs, you know, those crazy things. You've seen images of the old-fashioned medicine show and the guy that peddled them from town to town. They had those on board the boat. One of those that they gave them actually made them sicker because they found out that there was strychnine was actually one of the ingredients. That doesn't work very well either in the treatment of anything, does it? And so the simple truth was there was only one cure. You could throw everything at it. You could take a bottle of Tylenol. You can, you can apply all the different drugs that may even be represented in here. Prescription drugs is not going to treat scurvy. The only thing that would treat scurvy they passed by because it was readily available on the islands that they had stopped at before they reached the bottom of South America. They could have picked up citrus fruit and they never would have had the outbreak. In fact, it became very, very common after, shortly after this, when they discovered that it just took vitamin C, they would carry limes because for some reason limes lasted longer than any other citrus on the ships. And that's why British naval men, seamen, began to be called limeys. But there was only one cure. One. This is what Jesus is telling us. There is only one remedy. There is only one cure. There's one way. There's one gospel. There's not multiple gospels. There's not layers of gospels. There, there's not, well, you know, I go with this, with the gospel, this package, this gospel package. You know, it's, it's, it's okay. It just doesn't require as much of me. I, I kind of like this one. You know, I can, I can have some of Jesus, but not all of Jesus. It doesn't radically transform my life. So I still keep my life. Oh, no, I have this package. I have package B. I went for that program. Oh, really? I went with C. And then you have some guy proudly walk up. Now, I went all the way, you know. I went with D. I mean, D's the full package. I mean, I'm suffering for it now, but hey, man, I went with the whole thing. There's one. Jesus is reiterating that. He's telling Nicodemus, no, there's one. You must be born again. 
born again through the living, abiding word of God. So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. No other word, no other opinion. No, this is how I see it. God initiates it. I see my sin. I see my lostness. I see my hopeless position. And he shows me the only remedy. He shows me Jesus. He shows me the cross. He shows me his cleansing blood. He shows me my forgiveness. And I believe, and I am forever changed. I am reborn. I am made new. I am transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. This is our message, people. This alone is our message. Is there any greater need in the United States right now than this message? Do we need to tell people again how to have a better life? Do we need to tell them again how to work better? How to be happier? It's not working. People are more unhappy today than they've ever been. They're taking more drugs for happiness than they ever have. What do we need to tell them? You must be born again. Is this our message? Yes? Have you been born again? If the word of God has moved you in in any way, and I'm not going to make an assumption. I would like to assume that we've all been born again, but I'm I'm not going to make that assumption in case... God's spirit has moved in anybody's life in this room. You need to make it known. You need to tell your parents. You need to tell somebody else. You need to tell me. You need to tell an elder. No, I'd like to pray right now and be born again. And to the rest of us, I would just tell you, this is our message. Don't let it go. Don't let it go. Don't be convinced of anything less. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity of the words of Jesus. We thank you that by your marvelous and amazing grace that you reached out to sinful, undeserving people with a message of hope that you must be born again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.